Micah 5 is our text for this morning. This is the word of Almighty God. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And and, And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver." Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and will destroy your chariots, and will cut off the cities of your land, and throw down all its strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you, and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey." Let's pray. Father, even hearing this passage, we realize we have work to do, to understand it, to see the beauty, and yet it's there. I pray, God, that you will inspire us to gospel truth and glory and joy in your word this day. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And you can be seated. What if I told you, you have a glorious future awaiting you. How would you feel? Y'all good with that? All right. What if I told you that you have a glorious future awaiting you, but before you get there, you've got to go through some pretty tough times? How would you feel then? If the glory of the future outweighs the toughness of the tough times, you're probably going to receive it as good news. Well, in the days of Micah, the people of Judah were in a situation that promised tough times to come. But God wanted them to know that their tough times would lead to the glory of God's ultimate promise being fulfilled. The year was around 700 BC. The northern kingdom of Israel had been demolished a couple decades earlier. The people of Judah 
We're being threatened by the Assyrians. The powerful rise of the Babylonian Empire is just on the horizon. And as you think of the circumstances surrounding Judah in Micah's day, you're going to get the feeling of the people better if you grasp that much more is at stake here than national security. God had made promises that included Judah. God had promised that the one to come, the one who would set the world right, would come from the kingly line of David. But if God lets Judah be wiped off the map, it feels like God's promise may not come to pass. And if God's promise doesn't come to pass, nobody arises to set right what went wrong with humanity from the very beginning. The world will be helpless and hopeless if God lets his promise fall to the ground and be broken. Adding to the problem, Judah is not a good nation. Yes, King Hezekiah has tried to straighten out the people, but the people aren't following along very well. Many of the powerful have been oppressing the poor around them, stealing their lands, taking advantage of their weaker position. Many of the religious leaders, the priests, they've stopped telling the truth from the word of God. Instead, they've been saying only what they think will make them money. Idolatry is still present in the land. And God, according to the covenant that God made, should crush this nation for their sin. So we've got a nation that deserves the full-on judgment of God And if God fully judges them in the way that they deserve, the promise is going to die. And if the promise of God dies, all of humanity is lost forever. That's how big a deal the present situation is in Judah in Micah's day. So, as we open the fifth chapter of Micah, we're going to read the ending portion of of the second prophetic cycle of the book. And as we do, we're going to find four points that God makes to the nation of Judah to talk to them about their future. I want us to work through the points first so that we see what God had to say to the people of Micah's day around 700 BC. And then, like we've done before, we're going to wrap up the message by seeing how these promises from God so long ago speak to you and me today. So you ready to get started? Okay, point number one, God promises a powerful shepherd. God promises a powerful shepherd. Verse one, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Two major historical events inform our reading of verse 1. Both of them are dark. Both are frightening. Both were crushing to the city of Jerusalem in Judah. In the year 701 BC, the Assyrian Empire marched into Judah. They were intent on taking people captive as they had done to the northern kingdom of Israel 20 years earlier. 
And as the army marched into the land, they destroyed whole towns. They trampled fields. They kept crops from being able to grow. And the people who lived in Jerusalem were starving as the Assyrians set up their siege. And one would almost think that scene was the impetus for what Micah says here in 5.1, except for one thing. God did not let the Assyrians win. In 701 BC, God sent a mighty angel to drive the Assyrians out of the land and to grant his people a reprieve. And if you remember your Old Testament history, how many of you remember your Old Testament history really well? Yeah, let's not play that game, right? Here's something at the end of Isaiah 38, 39 in, in that section that a lot of times we think is a weird story and we don't get it. Do you guys remember, just after the Assyrians were defeated by that angel of God, King Hezekiah got sick, thought he was going to die, then he recovered. And around the year 700 BC, give or take, the Babylonians sent envoys to Hezekiah. And the Judean king Hezekiah showed the Babylonians everything he owned. He showed them his treasures. He showed them his weapons of war. You remember that story? Now, why did Hezekiah do that? Hezekiah was trying to form an alliance between Judah and Babylon. Instead of trusting God to protect Judah as God just had supernaturally done... Hezekiah makes the mistake of his father and of his grandfather before him, and he tries to ally with the wicked instead of resting in the power and the promise of God. Listen to Isaiah 39, verses 3 through 7. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What do these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried away to Babylon. Nothing shall be left says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isaiah was speaking that prophecy at the same time as Micah's ministry. And Isaiah told Hezekiah, the people are going to be captured by Babylon. And that conquest takes place about a century later. And that is what Micah is predicting in 5.1. Micah calls on the people to muster their troops, to be ready. Jerusalem's going to be besieged again. And this time there's not going to be any angel from God to drive the army away. No, the Babylonian army is going to come and they're going to capture the land and they're going to capture the power of Jerusalem. The prophetic language says they're going to strike the man in power in Jerusalem on the cheek. Defeating a man clearly defenseless 
to help himself. This is a dark prophecy, and it certainly came to pass by the year 586 B.C. And the question would be, what now? Has, with the fall of Jerusalem, with the destruction of the temple, with the carrying off of people to Babylon, has the promise of God failed? And the answer is no way. God has a plan. God is going to keep his promise. God offers hope. And you see it in a verse of Micah that you actually know because it's familiar to our New Testament ears. Look at, starting at verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she was in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Now that passage is familiar. When do you usually hear that verse 2 read? It's a Christmas verse, right? That verse is God promising that though the Babylonians are going to strike down the ruler over Jerusalem, God is going to bring a king to the throne who fits everything God has always sworn he will accomplish. The king is going to come from Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah means fruitful. It designates the Bethlehem that's near Jerusalem as opposed to some other Bethlehem town. Now, Bethlehem is the town where David grew up. Now, the promise that a ruler will come from Bethlehem actually says more than you might not think on its surface. If God was going to keep kings descended from David on the throne of Judah until the Messiah came, then the ruler to come would not be born in Bethlehem. Why? If, if Davidic kings were on the throne, where would the ruler be born? Where did the king live? Kings lived in Jerusalem. But we have a king being born in Bethlehem. The fact that the ruler is going to come from Bethlehem, that tiny little town, that insignificant little town, that hints to you and me that the kingly line is not going to be ruling when the promised one is born. And God says a ruler is going to come out of Bethlehem and that ruler has been promised by God for a long, long time. How long has God been promising the ruler? Keep looking at Micah. His coming has been from ancient days. In point of fact, this one to come has been God's plan from before the time of creation. Then in verse 3, God makes sure that we don't miss his plan. God's going to give up his people to foreign powers for a time. They're going to go captive for a time. And only at the right time, when the nation births the promised one, is God going to start bringing back to himself the people of the promise. But when this takes place, the promised ruler is going to stand and shepherd his people And unlike the foolish judges of old, and unlike the wicked and the greedy oppressors of Micah's day, Israel's going to have a shepherd. They're going to have a ruler who leads, who provides for, who protects the people of God. Who will that shepherd be? You get some hints here. 
Look at this. He's going to shepherd in the strength and the majesty of the Lord. Just ask yourself this question. Who has the strength and majesty of the Lord? Yeah. Let me ask you this. Do you all think anybody in our current government has the strength and majesty of the Lord? You, you, don't, you don't say that when you look at like the president giving a speech. There was the strength and majesty of the Lord on display. Who has the strength and majesty of the Lord? It has to be the Lord, right? Does anybody other than the Lord have the strength and majesty of the Lord? Then the shepherd to come is going to be the Lord. That's a big deal, guys. That's a big theological deal that we'll get to in a minute. Verse 4 then ends with this perfect promise of God. God's people are going to be secured. But it's not just a promise for a secure land of Israel. Do you notice? The shepherd to come will be great. How far? To the very ends of the earth. The shepherd to come is going to be a king who rules the world and rules the world forever. I told you Isaiah ministered at the same time. How does he make the same promise? Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it from, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In verses 1 to 4, the people of Judah learn a couple major truths. Number one, they learn that they are going to fall to a foreign power and ain't nothing going to stop it. And two, God is going to bring out of that nation that he somehow preserves somebody who will stand, who will shepherd, and who will then rule the entire world. There is a powerful shepherd to come. Now, I'm not going to tell you how this applies to us today, but I bet you can start figuring it out even if I don't tell you. Point number two. God promises protection from enemies. God promises protection from enemies. Five and six. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. So these two verses give the people of Judah great hope. Now, the language, interestingly, is blending together pictures that kind of fit both the Babylonian and the Assyrian empires and their attacks. And why would the prophet blend those nations together? Probably to show that we're talking more here than that God is only going to protect Israel from Assyria and Babylon. Almost any commentator I read writing about those verses said that Micah is here using the names of well-known nations, of well-known threats of his day to show us that God is promising his people that no threatening power is going to destroy his people and no threatening power could ever prevent his promised one from ruling. God, his promised shepherd to come, 
God's, these guys are going to be the, the peace of the people. Even when the bad guys from all over the world threaten, God will never, no, not ever let the world finally and completely conquer God's people. Yes, there are times in history when God's people suffer greatly, but never will God's promises fail. Then at the end of verse 5, we get something interesting God's going to do. When the world tries to destroy his people, God will raise for their protection faithful leaders who will stand on their behalf. Seven shepherds, eight princes. That shows us God is going to use real-life political leaders and powers all through history that will preserve his people and keep God's promise. The people of Micah's day, they lived in a world of political threat. They saw nations conquer and they saw nations destroy other nations. They knew powerful empires were going to rise and would fall. And here they see God promising this. God will always preserve his people. God will always use his power to raise up leaders that will keep his people from being wiped out. During the Old Testament, There is history of God doing that very thing, isn't there? Think about Queen Esther. God brought this woman to the throne of Persia and prevented Haman from wiping out the entire Jewish nation, which was Haman's plan. Or go beyond the Old Testament. In that intertestamental period, in the 2nd century BC, the Syrian ruler Antiochus IV came into Jerusalem He defiled the temple. He threatened the destruction of the people of God. And the Lord used the family of Judas Maccabeus to drive those invaders out and to reconsecrate the temple in 164 BC. There's God raising up somebody to keep the nation alive, that the promise might be kept alive. One biblical example, one extra biblical example, but still we see that God has done it. And God has promised a powerful shepherd who's going to protect from enemies. Well, what about the time when the people of God are taken into foreign nations? Point number three, God promises to preserve his people. God promises to preserve his people. Look at seven through nine. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of men of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. So, it's great to know God's going to raise up leaders that will preserve his people from enemies that would wipe the nation out. But in the first section, we saw God has said he's going to let the nation be given over to foreign powers for a time until the promised one came. Back in chapter 4, God said the nation was going to go captive to Babylon. Today we read that Isaiah promised the people that very same captivity. This section speaks to the plan of God for God's people when they're scattered among the nations. What is God going to do with his people while they're in captivity? 
Here God calls the scattered people the remnant of Jacob. What's a remnant? It's a, it's a small number that represents the whole. Many of the people of Jacob, both the northern and the southern kingdoms, are going to die at the hands of foreign armies. No doubt about that. But a representative group of people will survive. God promised he will not let the nation be destroyed. And God will keep that promise. Now verses 7 and 8, they're very similar, very parallel, very poetical pictures. We see two ways that the people of God are going to impact the nations into which they go. One is depicted by water, the other by a lion. Verse 7, God says his scattered people are going to be like dew or rain showers. Those are words of blessing. For some nations that have the people of God living in their midst, the remnant will be a blessing to that nation. God's people will bring the blessing of God upon the land where they go, even when they're not the ones in political power. God commanded the Jews that were going to Babylon to be that sort of blessing. In Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, we read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. Did you hear that? God told his people, be a blessing in whatever land you live. But in contrast, verse 8 talks about the people of God among the nations like a lion among the beasts of the field. That, friends, is not blessing language for the nations. Instead, that's God bringing judgment on the nations because of and through his people in their midst. Then verse 9 points to victories given by God to his people over their enemies even when they're captive. Of course, this points us to the book of Esther again, the Feast of Purim, the the military victory God gave his people over the people who wanted to destroy them in Persia. But beyond that, this points to the fact that God will use his people, God will use their presence as judgment on evil nations that oppose him. So the point in this three-verse section is that God promises that he will preserve the remnant of his people. God will not let them be wiped out. And that's another hint that God promises to keep his promise even when people think it's impossible. Now, last point, and then we'll get to some application. You still awake? Oh, I'm so glad. God promises a purifying judgment. Last point, God promises a purifying judgment. Verses 10 through 15. And in that day declares the Lord, I'll cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds and I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes and I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So when God brings his judgment on the land, there are two reasons he's going to do so. 
Here, one of the reasons is that he would justly punish a nation for sin, bringing about destruction as the right consequence of evil. But another purpose is purification because sometimes God lets judgment fall for the sake of correcting his people. So here in chapter 5, this last five verses, actually, I guess technically that's six verses, isn't it, if if I count? We see both kinds of judgment. 10 to 14 talks about what God's going to do with his people. Verse 15 points us toward the nations that go after and oppose the Lord. So how is God going to purify his people in judgment? Verse 10 God's going to take away from his people their chariots and their horses. Verse 11, God promises to let their cities and strongholds be destroyed. Those are tools of warfare, weapons and defenses. See, one of the mistakes Israelite kings made, especially Hezekiah, was to believe that they could forge alliances and fight to rescue themselves without worrying about the help of God. That was the sin of King Ahaz. It was the sin of King Hezekiah here that that caused all kinds of problems. Big deal. God is no longer going to let these people trust in themselves and their own might. He's going to teach them to trust in him and his power alone like they should have done all all along because God is going to purify his people from a sinful self-sufficiency. You guys know Psalm 20 verse 7? Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of what? The Lord our God. Good. Verse 12, God is going to purify the land of sorceries, of fortune telling. God had forbidden those things in the law. God still forbids mankind thinking that we can somehow consort with spirits or tell the future by the stars. And any attempt to talk to the dead or read the future is an attempt to manipulate the spiritual world in a way that directly opposes the holiness and the glory of God. God forbids it. God hates it. And God says he's going to rip those practices out of his people's lives. Verses 13 and 14, God promises to root out the sin of idolatry. When his judgment falls on Judah, the people are going to learn never again to bow to idols, never again to participate in pagan fertility rites. God hates all forms of seeking the aid of false gods and evil spiritual forces. And God will make sure that his people stop it. But then verse 15, it's not a purifying judgment anymore. Now we see what God's going to do with the nations who hate him and who refuse to obey his call to repentance. 10 to 14, we saw God say that his judgment would purify the people. Verse 15, God is going to execute vengeance on the nations that oppose him. Not a purifying judgment, a judgment of destruction. God's telling his people two things in the last section. If you belong to God... The judgments that you face from God will only ever be judgments that God intends to purify you that you might better honor God. Because look, if you love Jesus, if you know Jesus, if you have Jesus, God's not mad at you. Why not? Because every ounce of anger God ever had for you sin, he poured out on Jesus on the cross. But if you oppose God, if you don't belong to God, if you've never come to Jesus, if you're not willing to surrender to Jesus, you will face a judgment that will destroy you. That's what's being said in 10 to 14 and then verse 15. Okay, 
We've seen what God promised the people through Micah. Let's make a few application points for ourselves today. Now, even before we unpack the four points, I think this whole passage ought to already be stirring your heart to want to worship God in the simple fact that God did everything he promised here. Aren't you glad to see prophecy that was fulfilled? It's good. God promised that the Messiah would come, be born in Bethlehem, and we know Jesus came and was born from Bethlehem. God promised that Judah would go captive to Babylon, but they would be preserved, and God did that very thing. God promised that he would cleanse his people from sinful self-sufficiency, occult practices, and idolatry. And by the time Jesus ministers in Jerusalem, those practices were pretty much gone. God made promises, and he fulfilled them by his mighty sovereign power. God is worthy of worship. God's worthy of all honor, all glory. But now look at the four points that we found. God promises a powerful shepherd. Friends, that's Jesus. You get it, right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus is a king in David's line. Jesus has in himself the might and majesty of the Lord, and Jesus reigns as king. He is the king right now, reigning on the throne of heaven, and Jesus will reign as king of kings and lord of lords over the world forever, never changing. As you see the truth of the identity of Jesus Let this point call you to believe in Jesus and to worship Jesus. Follow Jesus. Bow to him as your king. Kids, this is a good thing for you to think about. When you think about Jesus, think about him as a king. Yes, he's sweet. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he'll forgive you. But you don't know Jesus if you're not willing to let Jesus be the boss. He is your king. Follow him like a king. Surrender to follow the king who is going to be victorious over every enemy he ever faces. God also promises protection from enemies and preservation for his people. In the history of Israel, we saw that God never ever let the evil world conquer his people. Yes, his people suffered from time to time, but God never lost his people. And even when his people were subjects in foreign lands, God used them as instruments of blessing or as lands of cursing in those lands as the lands either did what was right or what was wrong. Well, Christians, here we are, and can you not agree with me that we live as strangers in a strange land today? What does this promise have to do with you and me? God will never let his people be overwhelmed. God will not let us be ultimately, finally destroyed. We may face hardship, but he'll never let his church die. God will use us as instruments in his hand in whatever land we live that he will accomplish his purpose for his glory. As God said to the Jews through Jeremiah, we should settle in and seek to do good in our land. So when we have the opportunity to affect positive change, we should do so. In our setting, while we still have the right to vote, we should make it a priority only to vote for those who will do things that honor the Lord. When a politician stands in front of you and swears to you that he or she is going to fight to do things or to enact things or to empower things that God calls abomination, you should not support them. In our neighborhoods, in our jobs, 
in our community, we should do what we can to help people to see the love of God and God's holy ways as good and as right. And God promises a purifying judgment. You've got to learn from 10 to 14 that you should turn away from sin. God will allow hard things in this world to strengthen his people, and that means that God may well use the evil things in our world to purify the church. Let the ugliness of this world drive you away from self, away from sin. Let it drive you away from worldly thinking. Let it drive you away from evil practices. Let the pains of life drive you to repent and to depend fully on Jesus Christ. And then verse 15 reminds us there is a crushing, wrathful vengeance of God to come that is very real. Avoid that at all costs. And how do you avoid the judgment of God? There's only one way. This is the best Sunday school answer. If I say to you, there's only one way for you to avoid the wrath of God, what's that way? It's Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Run to Jesus. Say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Surrender to the Lordship of Jesus because only Jesus died for the sins of God's people. Only Jesus can rescue a sinner from the eternal wrath of God in hell. And the good news is, Jesus, God the Son, God who saves, welcomes into God's family every single person who will repent and believe. So oppose Jesus, you will face the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Turn to Jesus, you will find forgiveness and life forever. God promised a good shepherd to come. Will you get under the rule of that good shepherd today? Let's pray together, friends. God, I'm so grateful for your word. It is beautiful. It is powerful. It is glorious. It is awe-inspiring. It is true from beginning to end. Please, God, help us now to be your people. Help us now to learn from your word and to be inspired to right living. Help us now. Help us now to be the church who rests in our God, in our mighty shepherd, turning from sin, taking the gospel to the nations, loving you with all our hearts. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.